Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 79, Under the Microscope. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Georgia Purdom from Answers in Genesis. She's a molecular geneticist and she's going to be joining us today to talk about creation, evolution, and the age of the earth. I know that at the end of last episode I said that the next episode in the feed would be uh, the Eastern Orthodox debate on infant baptism. Uh, actually, just to remind you, there are two Eastern Orthodox debates in March. One is with Jamin Hubner on infant baptism. That's going to be on the 20th. And then on the 27th, uh, the same Eastern Orthodox joins me again to debate Rob Bowman from the Institute for Religious Research on the topic of Sola Scriptura. Uh, but it, anyway, I know that I said that the first of those debates would come up in the next, uh, as the next episode in the feed, but the opportunity to, uh, to interview Dr. Purdom arose and I didn't want to pass it up. So I'm going to squeeze that brief interview you uh, into the feed uh, between last episode and the infant baptism debate. Uh, there are a few things that I want to talk about real briefly. Um, <clears throat> the, the first of which is I'm really, really excited. If you followed me, if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, you'll know, you'll know this. I'm really excited about a program that my wife and I are going through right now called Financial Peace University from Dave Ramsey. Um, now, I don't know a whole lot about where Dave comes from theologically or anything like that, but at least as far as finances goes, um, I, he's incredible, and his program has been really life-transforming for my, for my wife and I. Um, if you haven't checked out Financial Peace University, if you live paycheck to paycheck like uh, my wife and I have historically, or if you've got a ton of debt that you uh, aren't paying off or you know anything like that, I would definitely recommend that you go to DaveRamsey.com. Um, check, check his resources out, join a Financial Peace University small group at your church or, or something like that. Uh, it's, it's just, it's incredible. Uh, I've, I've emailed the press team at Dave Ramsey to see if he would be interested in letting me interview him on my show. I don't expect hearing, uh, I don't expect to hear anything back because he's incredibly, uh, popular and, uh, no doubt very busy. Um, but we'll see. Uh, keep that in your prayers if you're at all interested in hearing Dave Ramsey on the show. It would be an interesting departure from, uh, theology and apologetics to talk about money, but, you know, there's a, there's a theology in the Bible uh, about money. Uh, there's a doctrine of finances, and uh, I think it would be interesting to talk about. Um, speaking about FPU sort of leads me into the next thing that I wanted to say, which is that because we started to get our budget in order and stuff like that, it, it opened up an opportunity for my wife and I to do something that my, or my, my wife and my son, my oldest son, to do something that they've been wanting to do for a long time, or at least, at least that my wife has been wanting to do, which is uh, go on a missions trip uh, with our church. Um, she's gonna. She and my oldest son are gonna be going to Union de Tula, which is near Jalisco, Mexico. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, they're gonna be helping a partner church down there um, to do some vacation Bible school for some of the kids in in the colonials around uh, that area, uh, and and helping out with various other needs as well. Um, and if it hadn't been for FPU, there's just no way we would have been able to budget out the $2,400 that it's going to cost to do this uh, across the next uh, seven paychecks. So um, I'm really excited about that. I know that my wife and son are excited about that. Uh, if you're at all interested in uh, donating to um, uh, my wife's and my son's missions trip, um, you can you can donate online, and I'll I'll give you the details if you if you're interested. Just email me at theapologetics.hotmail.com. Uh, but like I said, we've got the the cost budgeted out, and so um, 
donations are certainly not necessary. But if you're interested in helping out the, the children in this area, if, if you've got a little bit of money to um, contribute, email me and, and I'd be happy to send you the de details. Um, <clears throat> the last thing that I wanted to talk about briefly was uh, last Saturday, the episode aired on Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, uh, in which I discussed the nature of eternal punishment with Steve Jeffrey. Um, the conversation went very well. I'm incredibly happy with how it went. I mean, the only thing that I... I might have a couple of criticisms. I, I don't think I got as much time as uh, Steve did, and I don't think that uh, it was anything but a very high-level introduction to the topic. We didn't get into a lot of the texts that I would have liked to have. But I really think that my newfound position on the, on the topic um, came across, uh, uh, came out on top. Um, I think that it was the one that was more biblically based. Um, and I think that it's, uh, what's more important than that is the uh, sort of irenic, um, uh, you know, amicable conversation. The, the, the tone of the, the tone and tenor of the conversation was really impressive. I think that it was uh, a perfect example of how two uh, how two children of God can disagree on an important topic like this in a loving, respectful way. Um, so, I would definitely encourage that you go check it out. Uh, you can go to um, uh, you can go to Unbelievable's website. Uh, the URL I'll give out in a moment, uh, and you can listen online or you can subscribe to their podcast and download the episode. It was it's just. It's, it was really good, and I encourage you to listen. Um, I mentioned on Facebook, by the way, the other day that uh, after this episode, the next thing that I would do is um, uh, do sort of a follow-up episode to that unbelievable uh, discussion, playing some a couple of clips from it and responding to them, playing some of the feedback that Justin received, stuff like that. But uh, what I found out after I posted that on Facebook was that Justin is on holiday right now, and he and the episode that he's going to be airing this coming weekend won't have any of that feedback to my discussion on hell. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and wait until after the Eastern Orthodox debates, uh, and then I'll come back and I'll play some clips, comment on them, and then I'll play whatever feedback Justin has received, and I'll respond to that. Um, I'm sure that because we didn't get into as many texts uh, as I would have liked to have, I'm sure that he's going to get a lot of emails and voicemails and stuff like that, and you know, <clears throat> perhaps those will be worth responding to in my show. Uh, so anyway, and, and in place of doing that episode next week, what I'm going to try to do uh, before the first Eastern Orthodox debate is the Kicking Some Left Behind uh, episode that I've been promising Dee Dee Warren for, God, it must have been over a year now. Um, she's been making fun of me on her podcast saying I must have turned into a futurist because I keep telling her it'll be soon. Uh, and here it has been, you know, something like a year. Uh, well, I'm going to try and rectify that situation. I guarantee you I am not a futurist, even if I've been using the word soon a little loosely. Uh, I'm going to make a concerted effort over the next two weeks to get that episode to her. Um, and then we'll move right into the first of those Eastern Orthodox debates on March 20th. So uh, in any case, I guess that's really all I wanted to talk about. And, and because we just got done talking about Unbelievable, it's, um, uh, it's kind of a coincidence because the next promo in my feed is for Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. And let's listen to that right now. You're unbelievable. Okay, so you've got their book, read their blog, and downloaded their talks. But where can you hear the arguments of your favorite defenders of faith actually being put forward in the context of a live radio debate? Only one place. Unbelievable is the show and podcast that brings together Christians and non-Christians to discuss apologetics, the Bible, philosophy, God, science, evolution, design, different worldviews and ethics every single week. How can the text of the Bible be authoritative if we can't agree on what the text was? 
Bart's position is that we don't have the original writings. I would say that we do. We don't have the original copies, but we do have the original writing. Professor Dawkins and others acknowledge that there is no evolutionary explanation for the origin of the first life. That caused being agency or mind. God, do you mean God when you say I agency? God, is a, God, I mean God. Is a, I think it's a likely candidate. But Most atheists feel if life is eternal, then life is cheap. Jesus talked about life in all its fullness. And life in all its fullness requires um, a relationship with the person who called us into existence. I'm Justin Briley, the host of the show, and I'd like to encourage you to tune in to Cutting Edge Apologetics Debate from the heart of London, England at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You can download the podcast, join the forum, and get in touch wherever you are around the world. That's Unbelievable, the show that brings together Christians and non-Christians, podcasting every Saturday at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You're unbelievable. Let me repeat that again just to make sure that you can get to the website. It's www.premier, that's P-R-E-M-I-E-R, dot o-r-g dot u-k forward slash unbelievable uh it airs on premier christian radio in the uk from uh 2 30 to 4 p.m on saturdays uh you can also uh, download the podcast feed and you'll listen to episodes very shortly after they've aired i can't speak highly enough about the show it's it's very challenging it's going to cause your faith to grow uh, a lot of fascinating to to- uh, topics to listen to people t- discuss both between christians and non-christians of a variety of persuasions as well as between christians who hold uh, opposing views on some particular topic like uh like steve jeffrey and i did in in our recent episode together um so check it out if you haven't subscribed already subscribe to the podcast go back through the years of back episodes they've got available you're gonna find it uh you're gonna find it very challenging and it's gonna cause you to grow definitely check it out uh and with that let's go ahead and move into today's interview I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Georgia Purdom, research scientist at Answers in Genesis and member of the American Society for Microbiology and the Creation Research Society. Dr. Purdom is the first female PhD scientist engaged in full-time research and speaking on the book of Genesis for a creationist organization. And she joins me today to discuss creation, evolution, and the age of the earth from the perspective of a molecular geneticist committed to the authority of scripture. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Purdom. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, if we could begin by telling us a little bit about your scientific background and education, uh, what, what area did you get your doctorate in, and, and what was the focus of your graduate work? Um, well, I um, received a Ph.D. from Ohio State University um, in molecular genetics, and while I was there, my main focus um, was working on uh, basically factors that were involved in how bones actually kind of build and break down. So I was kind of looking at the genetics of that and what was important for the cells there. And so, um, and then I actually taught at a Christian college. I taught biology, various aspects of it, um, at a Christian college for six years before coming to Answers in Genesis. You know, it's it's fascinating, by the way, and, and I'm glad to hear that because it seems to me that a lot of Christian colleges are moving away from uh, biblical authority. So that that's really cool to hear. Uh, what, what kinds of scientific research are you engaged in today? 
Um, well, my main focus here at Answers in Genesis has been looking at natural selection and mutation and how those mechanisms can alter um, populations because those are the two main mechanisms that um, evolutionists would say, you know, drove evolution. They're the main force. And mm. so I like to look at them to see what they can and what they cannot um, do. I see. Well, and many skeptics uh, who might claim to have once believed the Bible will say that it's actually the very thing, kinds, of, kinds of things that you just mentioned, that, that th this kind of scientific evidence to some extent prompted them to abandon their faith. But, of course, there are others who would say that the scientific evidence bolsters their trust in the scriptures. That's certainly the case with me. W what about you? How has your experience as a scientist impacted your faith? Well, I think it definitely um, impacted it in a positive way because um, one of the things – Studying molecular genetics, really studying the intricacies of the cell and DNA, um, I, I just, I mean, just looking at that, I knew there was no way that evolution, such as random chance over millions of years, could have brought this about. Mm. Um, there was no way that that could have happened. And so I would say, in that sense, it definitely bolstered it. And nothing that I saw really contradicted um, what the Bible said. In fact, it was more consistent with it, whereas what I saw a lot of times, evolutionists having to really um, tweak and change things to make it fit their their starting points, their worldview about the past, whereas I didn't have to do that with mine because it was absolutely consistent with it. Sure, yeah, I, I agree. You know, some people might wonder how it is that two scientists could come to two radically different conclusions from the same scientific evidence. They they might wonder if perhaps the difference is that the secular scientist is, you know, being objective and, and doesn't have any bias, mm -hmm. whereas whereas the creation scientist like you is sort of desperately coming up with crazy interpretations of the evidence in order to save their, their worldview. How would you explain how two scientists studying the same evidence could come to such radically different conclusions? Well, and I think, and I get asked that question a lot, and it is a really good question because people will say to me, "Well, how come, you know, how can people just look at this and not believe, you know, that um, God did this and God created this?" I mean, anything else you would look at, you look at a watch, you look at a car, you know, somebody intelligent had to design it and put it together. Mm. But we look at the cell, which is infinitely more complex, and we say it's random chance. So how how why do people not believe? And I say ultimately, um, it's not about the evidence, and, and we need to understand that. I mean, evidence has a place, but it's really not about that. It's about how we view the evidence in light of our starting point, in light of our what we call our presuppositions, our basic beliefs about reality, um, especially when it comes to the area of what we call historical science, because this is dealing with things that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. um, we can't repeat them, we can't falsify them, we can't test them um, because they happened in the past. And so our worldview really has a major impact on how we view the evidence in relationship to the past um, when we're looking at what we can see in the present. Yeah. So, so in other words, nobody's without bias. Nobody is without presuppositions. Exactly. Uh, having, you know, believing in no God is a bias, just like believing in God is a bias. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Each of us have our starting point. And, you know, I want to talk in a moment about some of the reasons that you think the scientific evidence, at least properly interpreted, does support a young Earth and and, and not evolution. But because our starting point is the Bible, how would you summarize the biblical case for special creation and for a young Earth and against evolution and an ancient Earth? Um. Well, I think, you know, again, when we when we look um, at the scientific evidence, and all of it is consistent with Scripture. There's nothing that's inconsistent with it. And um, I think that that's important to um, remember 
um, when we're looking at this. Um, one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, the finding of soft tissue in dinosaur bones. Mm. And the evolutionists obviously did not expect to see that because the bone is supposedly 65 million years old or older. Those types of structures shouldn't exist. And so when they see these, they're really shocked and surprised, but it doesn't change the fact that they still think it's 65 million years old. They just think there's a process that allowed these things to be preserved that they don't understand. Mm. So it just goes to show that this is really about the worldview issue. This is about starting points because um, the most logical explanation for there being soft tissue is that the bone really isn't millions of years old. It's just thousands of years old. And so I think, again, just seeing that consistency and not having to tweak and sort of shove things in to make them work right. um, should help us understand that, that what we see and, and what we observe is, is consistent with Scripture but not with man's ideas about the past. Right, yeah, I agree, but but just if, briefly, if you could sort of give us a, a couple of passages or something, some, something that we could point to that my listeners could look at that would say, yeah, okay, I see why somebody starting with the starting point of Scripture would, in fact, go into this uh, examination of the evidence, expecting to see evidence for a young earth. Well, when we, I mean, look at Genesis 1, obviously um, we see that God created in, um, in six 24-hour days, and the word day there... Um, is referring to a 24-hour day because it's used with morning, evening, and a number. Um, when you read Exodus 20:11, it says, "For in six days God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh." So again, it's the form, it's the basis for our week. And so there's a clear, um, there's a clear. Uh, reading there, just a straightforward reading of it, um, that's why we believe that God did this in the time period that it says. We know it was only thousands of years ago from the genealogies. I mean, if you look at Genesis chapter 5 and 11, um, we can you add it up, and you see that there was 2,000 years between Adam and Abraham. And we know that from other genealogies, there's 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ, and we know there's 2,000 years between Christ and today. So that gives us a grand total of only 6,000 years. So we can clearly see that, you know, and God did this out of nothing. I mean, he mm. spoke it into existence, um, and that's very clear from Genesis 1 as well. And again, it's confirmed throughout all of Scripture. Um, it talks about God being the creator and his, his, um, his creation of this out of nothing. Uh, I mean, that's the context there. And so we, we see that many places throughout Scripture. Yeah, the genealogies are something I find very powerful, and one thing that I've appreciated is that at least some old earthers will admit that they don't have a good explanation for those. Uh, you know, others will try and say, well, you know, they mean that begat can refer to, you know, be, being an, an ancestor rather than a father, but when you when you put in the number of years after which a father has their child, I think it obliterates, right. yeah. Well, and it doesn't give you the millions of years. I mean, even if you allow for gaps, you're only going to get thousands. And so that's that's really the key there. Yeah, I agree. Well, but here's the thing. A lot of Christians would probably say that we're improperly treating the Bible as if it were a, a, a scientific textbook or, or, uh, or something like that. Um, in an article called Science and Biblical Authority, you explain that treating the Bible in this way as if it doesn't have anything to tell us about earthly things and, you know, it's really only intended to tell us about spiritual things, this is kind of often leads our children to walk away from their faith as they get into high school, college, and beyond. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and this is, I mean, a mass epidemic that's really happening in the churches today where the 20-somethings are essentially gone. They're, non, they're non-existent in church. And 
so why is this happening? And, you know, what's happened is that these kids growing up, and, you know, we did a study that's published in our book, Already Gone, um, really looking at this, and what we found is that a lot of kids are really questioning the Bible in junior high and high school. Um, you know, a lot of parents blame college for destroying their children's faith, but they're questioning way before that. And mm. the problem is they haven't been getting good answers. And some people will just say, well, you know, um, doesn't matter how God did it, just Daddy did it, or just believe in Jesus. That's the most important part of the Bible. And, well, what happens is these kids say, well, Mom and Dad, if you say that science um, is, you know, shows that Genesis is wrong, um, quote-unquote, then um, what about in the New Testament when a virgin gives birth and dead people come back to life? Science says those things can't happen either. So maybe the whole thing isn't true. And so it's a slippery slope, and it, it just it's very inconsistent. And I mean, I have an 8-year-old daughter, so I know how they like to pick out inconsistencies <laughs> yeah. in their parents, and they're seeing that inconsistency, and they're, and they're not believing any of it as a result of that, and they're walking away from the church. Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot. This question wasn't included, but but would you do you have any advice for people like me who are raising young ch- children who are beginning to you know move into later uh, later grades and stuff like that? How, how it is that we could um, teach our children apologetics and get them to have this kind of real gr- you know grounded trust in the scriptures uh, as they're as they're aging? Yeah, and it, that is really important. And like I say, with raising an eight-year-old, I'm doing that myself. And I think it has to be not just, um, you know, we talk about family devotion time. I think that's important to work it in there. And, and there are many resources that we have at AIG that can um, help you do that. But I think also just what I've noticed is just in everyday life, I mean, in, in things that come up on TV and things that they hear at school, um, being able to incorporate that and talk about that. I don't let, I mean, if we hear something on TV or they say millions of years, we immediately address it. I mean, we immediately, I don't care if she hears it a hundred times, she's going to hear it because we need to understand. And sometimes they go into, you know, longer explanations about why God's word is true and why we can trust that. And, you know, just constantly making it a part of your life and your speech um, and, you know, it talks about that in Deuteronomy, that parents are supposed to do that, you know, really emphasizing God's word and that, you know, what the world is saying isn't true and they're basing it on their own ideas about the past and they weren't there. But God is, God was there and he inspired men to write this down. So just constantly doing that, I think, is what is very effective. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because that's what I try to do. I, just yesterday, my my oldest son, he's 10 years old, almost 11, and, and he was talking about how he he saw something about how whales descended from mm-hmm. uh, creatures with snouts and their blowholes moved from the end of their snouts to the top of their mm-hmm. body and stuff. And yeah, we took that as an opportunity to to challenge <laughs> right. that. Uh, well, well, let's move from youth to women. Uh, some time ago, I interviewed Mary Jo Sharp from Confident Christianity, and uh, her ministry is, is largely to women. She, she thinks that the kinds of questions we're discussing today can have you know, some, somewhat of a unique impact on the faith and life of Christian women who need to know that the Bible's reliable and trustworthy in all areas. You're going to be speaking at an upcoming Answers for Women conference on April 19th and 20th. Can you tell us a little bit about that conference and what you're going to be speaking on? Yes, um, and you know I'm really excited that we're able to have conferences like that. I do women's conferences and other locations as well, and I really I agree with her in that sense because we do need to have women, um, you know, know that God's word is true. And what they're being said at a lot of women's conferences is frankly a lot of fluff. Um, mm. It's more motivational speaking um, than it really is the Word of God and delving into it and knowing what it says and knowing that it's true. And I think also there's the added um, um, sort of part to this for women because a lot of times they are responsible for instructing children. Um, They spend more time with them typically. Not to say that the father's role isn't important because it is very important, but just by the fact of, you know, how God has designed us and, and and that women 
and do typically take care of the children more, um, they need to know these answers. They need to be incorporating this and talking about this with their children. So we designed the Answers for Women Conference to be able to uh, sort of a first step in helping them do that. And I'm going to be speaking at the conference on, again, the relevance of Genesis, the importance of this, kind of setting the stage for it, and then talking about also um, we adopted our daughter from China. And so we're going to be talking about the issue of race and why we look different and how to understand that from a biblical standpoint as well as a scientific standpoint and really kind of um, help people understand that issue because that is a big one. Kids know they look different, you know, that people look different. How do we answer those questions? And then um, a friend of mine, um, Stacia, is going to be talking about the issue of uh, she has a child with disabilities and how do we understand the sovereignty of God um, and uh, and the issue of death and suffering, which, again, goes right back to Genesis and dealing with that in children with disabilities. Uh, Mary Moeller, who is the wife of Dr. Albert Moeller from Southern Seminary in Louisville, um, she's going to be joining us talking about talking to us about biblical womanhood and memorizing scripture. And then we also have Ken and Steve Hamm um, talking to us about um, the issue of death and suffering um, specifically because this is something that affects everybody's life and then also the issue of unity in the church. So we're going to be addressing a wide variety of topics and I really think there's going to be something there for everyone. So encourage women. Um, you can go to our website, answersforwomen.org, um, to find out more information about that and register for the conference. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, just really quick, where where is it going to be held? It is going to be held at the Creation Museum, and the special deal that we have is if you register for the conference, um, we will give free admission to your husband and children to attend the Creation Museum while you're at the conference. Oh, wow. I wish I lived closer to, <laughs> to the Creation <laughs> Museum. Okay. Well, well, well let's move, talk about science then. That, that's what I was really uh, excited to talk to you about. I, I recently did a three-part discussion with a couple of my, uh, my listeners, and we talked about how the geologic evidence properly interpreted supports the Bible's teaching that the Earth is young. But your area of expertise is biology, specifically molecular genetics. Can you tell us some of the things that you've discovered in your research that confirms what the Bible says uh, about creation and about the age of the Earth? Right. And, I mean, there's so many things with that. And, you know, one of the things um, I think of is um, looking at the different um, kind of animals that we have out there. And a lot of, you know, evolutionists would obviously say, well, one kind of animal has evolved into another kind of animal. Well, in order to do that, um, you have to have some sort of mechanism, genetic mechanism to allow that to happen. Um, there has to be um, changes that you, you, know, you can't go from a single-celled organism up to mankind today without adding information to the DNA. I mean, you have to add information on how to make brains, eyeballs, all of those things. Um, you can't just tweak um, the genome uh, or the DNA of a bacteria and get a human. Um, you have to add a lot of things. And so you have to have a mechanism to do that. Well, they would say, evolutionists would say mutation and natural selection do that. But if you look at them, and that's something we can study that falls under the category of observational science, we can study it in the present, and we can see that it takes away genetic information. It doesn't add it. So it doesn't matter how much time you give it. They say, well, time is key. It doesn't matter. You can give it millions of years, and if you're not adding anything, you never will. Um, even if you give it more time. So there's just no mechanism to be able to go from one kind of animal to another. And that's probably my favorite piece of quote-unquote um, you know, evidence um, when we're looking at this. They simply do not um, have a mechanism. And you know, I study specifically mutation and natural selection in microbial populations and looking mm. at this with bacteria. And you know, they do. They mutate. There's a lot of those things going on there, but they're totally different organisms from you and I, and God has designed them to be adapted to be master adapters because 
they can't come in from the rain, right? We can't. <laughs> we, can, we, we can make a choice in what our environment is like. They can't. And so they have to have that genetic flexibility that we don't. But yet what I find a lot of evolutionists doing is saying, oh, well, because this is true for bacteria, it's true for horses and cows and humans. But it isn't. I mean, we're totally different organisms, and, and there's a totally different design and purpose there. And so I think we have to be really call them out on that, that you can't take what's true for the bacteria isn't necessarily true for other organisms. Well, and isn't it also true that, that even with this amazing level of uh, adaptivity that, that, uh, uh, that microbes have, that, that even then there's not an, there's not, they're not increasing uh, in information or anything like that? Right, absolutely. I mean, they're not, there's not anything being added. There's things being taken away, and that might allow them in a, in a certain environment. It might allow them, it might be beneficial to them, um, but it certainly isn't adding some sort of new structure or function. It's just altering something that's already there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but, you know, when, I, when people find out that I don't believe in molecules to man evolution, they'll often present as evidence for evolution the resistance uh, that viruses and bacteria develop to antibiotics. You played a big role in some of the newest creation museum displays about how these kinds of changes aren't, in fact, examples of evolution. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that was one of our um, exhibits that we opened in the year of Darwin uh, in 2009 because we really wanted to help people understand that natural selection is not evolution because a lot of people will even say they'll use the term synonymously and they shouldn't be because they're not talking about the same thing, number yeah. one. And number two, they'll say creationists don't believe in natural selection. Well, absolutely we do. You can see it. You can observe it in the present, but it doesn't lead to the kind of changes that evolution requires that go from molecules to man. And so what we really tried to do is address what natural selection um, does and what evolution requires and show that it doesn't, it doesn't meet the requirements, so it can't be a mechanism for evolution. And we talked about um, a lot of different things in that exhibit, um, things like uh, the Darwin's finches, and I got to personally observe those um, last May in the Galapagos Islands, and um, it was amazing. I mean, there's all these different species of finches, but yet they're all finches, you know. Um, they have different beak sizes or slightly different colorations or things like that, but uh, but ultimately they're not, you know, different kinds of organisms. They're just There's just speciation that has occurred, and natural selection and other factors have led to that um, happening, but it's not evolution. It's not evolution in action. Um, one of the things that people like to talk about a lot that we address in the exhibit is um, molecules or is um, antibiotic resistance in bacteria. Right. And right, that's always heralded as an example of evolution in action, but it isn't because, like you, like I've said before, um, even with gaining um, resistance to the antibiotic, they've lost something else to be able to do that. Maybe they've lost the ability to break down a certain type of nutrient or be able to build the cell wall um, as well as they used to. And so, in an environment like a hospital or a nursing home, that's an advantage, and they survive better than the organisms that don't have that capability. But you take those bacteria and you put them outside the soil, uh, outside, you know, in the soil by your home, and they'll die because they can't compete well with the other bacteria that don't have those changes. And so, um, so again, I think beneficial mutations really don't exist. Um, beneficial outcomes um, of mutations in certain environments do. Um, in a hospital, that's a beneficial outcome because they're in the hospital and that helps them survive. But overall, it really depends on where they're at if that is a beneficial change or not. And ultimately, again, it's no gain of genetic information, no gain of structures and functions, just an alteration of what's currently there. Is that also the case with the, the bacteria that uh, develop the ability to consume nylon? I, you recently blogged on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that's a really, again, another popular one that's used um, against creationists. Supposedly, these bacteria have gained the ability to break down nylon. Well, they have gained the ability to break down nylon, but how have they done it? And, you know, we can study them, and they have enzymes that break down, um, three enzymes that are responsible for breaking down a substance that's very similar to nylon. Um, these bacteria normally do this, um, so to speak. It's, a, it's another substance that's very chemically similar to nylon. Well, in a, the wastewater um, uh, ponds, so to speak, as, as a result of nylon manufacture, what happens is around these factories is they find that these bacteria can actually have a mutation that allows them to break down the nylon as well. So what happened? Well, you have an alteration of an already existing enzyme or protein, you know, in the bacteria that allows them to break down a very chemically similar substance. Mm. Um, again, that's not evolution. That's not a gain of something novel or new. It's just now that it can break down a slightly different substance. And again, it's, it's um, decreasing um, and degrading the bacteria because they've actually um, lost specificity of that enzyme. It's no longer specific for one product. It's now um, more broad and can break down two. But ultimately, that's a, that, that would be seen as a form of degradation of the bacteria. And what about cases where uh, where bacteria sort of co-opt um, uh, information from, from other uh, organisms or something like that? Can you explain just a little bit about that? Right, and bacteria, again, um, they exchange genetic information a lot because it helps them survive. It's an adaptive um, uh, ability. But the thing is, it's not, it may be new genetic information to that particular bacteria, but it's not new overall. Um, it was existing already in another bacteria. Mm -hmm. And so they just swapped the information. I, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if I have money in my right pocket and I change that money to my left pocket, I'm not any richer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've just changed the location of the money. And so that's the same thing for the genetic information of the bacteria. Yeah, I see. Well, well there's a question that I've, you know, often pondered. We don't typically think of viruses and bacteria in particularly positive terms, but what, what purpose is it that they could have served in God's very good creation before the fall as originally designed, and how is it that, why is it that God would have, you know, um, gave them this incredible, uh, you know, ability to adapt? Well, um, you know, even in our post-fall world, we see that the vast majority of bacteria that we know of are not pathogenic. Um, they don't cause disease. They're actually good for us. And um, and we're finding about that out more and more that sometimes the way to cure a disease, a particular infection, is actually to, because you've gotten rid of the good guys, the bad guys survive, okay? So you need more of the good guys, things like probiotics and all of that is really popular now. And we're finding that it is really key to um, health, is to having the right, um, so to speak, um, populations of bacteria in our gut, on our skin, um, they're everywhere. And so they, they're, a lot of their pre-fall good, I think we still see very much exhibited in our world today. Um, I think what has happened in some cases is that um, the bacteria have tried to adapt to an, an altered environment as a result of the fall, as a result of the flood, and while that helps them survive, it's detrimental to us. It's pathogenic or disease-causing to us. So the bacteria kind of get a bad rap. Um, they're just trying to make it, <laughs> and um, and yeah. these kinds of things happen, so to speak, as a as a result of those changes. But I think a lot of their um, um, and even more and more we're finding things like viruses especially because you think, well, what, you know, there's yeah. not a lot of beneficial viruses that we normally think of, but what we're finding is even um, certain types of viruses have become part of our DNA, um, and whether they were originally there or they, you know, became 
um, part of it very early on, um, but they're they're actually important um, in sheep, for example, um, in order for them to complete a pregnancy oh, wow. and and have baby sheep, <laughs> have lambs, and so it's really it's really amazing um, to think about these things being an important part. Um, and we're finding that out more and more. And so I think the more studies that we do, and creationists are actively looking at that, um, the more that we study that, I think the more that we're going to find their beneficial values um, that were that now, as well as maybe think about the ones that were there pre-fall. Kind of reminds me of how, uh, for years, scientists have talked about vestigial organs, and now we're finding all sorts of uses for those vestigial mm-hmm. organs. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, so so let's begin to wrap up. I'd like to—I I really enjoy giving my guests an opportunity to leave my listeners and me with a you know kind of parting message. We've talked about a lot of things here. Is there anything that you'd most like to leave us with to think about from your perspective as a research scientist who believes the biblical account of creation? Well, I think one of the things I really like people to understand is that there um, a lot of times um, creationists are accused of being anti-science that yeah. we don't believe in science and and all of that, and that's far from it. I mean, obviously, I have a PhD um, from a respected institution in science. I absolutely believe in science. I love science, but um, it's part of what God has given us to study and to understand. But we need to understand that there is a distinctive difference between what we would call observational science, which gives us planes and trains and automobiles and computers and things like that, and historical science, which has something that has basically in regards to the past. Um, with observational science, creationists and evolutionists would approach it very similarly. Um, we would test it in a lab. We would either falsify our results and figure it out, repeat it, all of those things we can do. But And so our presuppositions really don't come into play there as much. But when it comes to the past, um, our presuppositions, our starting points play a huge role in how we look at the evidence and what we think it means for what has happened in the past, which we can't test or repeat. And we have to remember that um, the only one that was there in the past and that can tell us in all of this is God. Uh, man wasn't there. Everything that man comes up with about the past is merely based on um, their own ideas that are trying to um, purposely exclude God because they don't want God to be a part of the picture because if he is the creator, then they're responsible to him, yeah. and they don't want that. And so they're trying to do that on purpose, whereas we have God's word, who was an eyewitness to creation, who inspired men to write it down and have the truth about the past. So we need to, we need to understand that and realize that. Yeah, I'm reminded of Romans chapter 1. Uh, well, you, you've got a number of products and articles available at Answers in Genesis. F- for those listeners who want to learn more about the study of biology and genetics, h- how those things support a biblical view of creation, what would you recommend they check out? Um, I highly recommend, um, I have several DVDs um, specifically related to genetics um, talking about, um, one is called The Code of Life, um, DNA Information and Mutation, talking about mutation and natural selection. And then I have another one called Wonder of the Cell that looks at the intricacies of the cell. And then I have a couple other two on microbes and genetics. If you just look under PERDM um, on our website um, and re- under our um, store, that, that information will come out, uh, answersingenesis.org. And then I also highly recommend our new answers books, um, 1, 2, and 3. These are a really great resource, especially for lay people, because that's they're written at the lay level um, so that people can understand things about a wide variety of topics from um, genetics to geology to paleontology, astronomy, all of those different areas, and they're a really great resource. And again, um, you can find out information about that at answersingenesis.org, and we obviously want to see um, everybody come out to the Creation Museum um, and visit us and find out more information about this, and you can go to creationmuseum.org to uh, find out about that and schedule your visit. Great, wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate the time you've taken today. Okay, thank you.
Boy, that was awesome. That was even better than I anticipated it would be. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast with the infant baptism Eastern Orthodoxy debate. Until then. Thank you.